we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. And um, we're, we're at part two of a series about God's covenants. We're looking at God's covenants. I'll tell you more about that in a, in a moment. And we started last week with God's covenant with, with creation. Um, but today we're going to look at um, God's covenant with Adam and Eve. And we're going to look uh, um, from Genesis chapter 3. So let me read it to you. It'll come up on your screens as well. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree and life, tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and that's angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So we're coming back to this um, to this study of God's covenants. And before we do, let me just uh, um, I always run offer you side by side mode. If you're on a laptop, you can go up to your uh, top of your screen and select side by side mode and you can see me and then you can see the PowerPoint at the same time. 
I think if you're on an iPad, you can see the PowerPoint and you get a little version of me in the bottom corner uh, if you want it anyway. And I think if you're on an iPhone, you can swipe and you can swipe between the PowerPoint and me. Um, on the PowerPoint, uh, we put out some sermon notes ahead of time. And on the PowerPoint, um, you get some words in red and they um, and the red words come up uh, on a word search on the sermon notes, um, primarily for the younger people, but for anybody who needs some help in concentration as they go along. Why are we going to um, study God's covenants? Well, because God always relates to his people through a covenant. That's why. And a covenant is an agreed uh, arrangement. And I, it was interesting over the last couple of days uh, when I started to think about it, that uh, I'm trying to read the Bible in a year. So I have an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading um, and a reading from Psalms or Proverbs. And what struck me was that in all of those readings yesterday, um, the word covenant uh, appeared. It is, is, it is central to our understanding um, of, uh, of how we relate to God. Um, and we can't read the Bible without seeing covenant again and again. And we need to understand how covenant is in one sense always the same and always has the same features, but also how, uh, how the covenants uh, God makes with his people develop over time. Some things are specific to some of the covenants. So let me share my screen for the moment with the PowerPoint. You get the PowerPoint and we'll start. So we're studying God's covenants because that's, that's the way the Lord always relates to his people. Um, the elements of the covenant are always the same. He sovereignly calls people to himself to live in his place and under his rule and blessing. So but all covenants are always about God's people in his place under his blessing, under his blessing. It's a life and death pact sealed in blood. So one writer says it's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. I think the covenant with creation is the unusual one because it hasn't happened yet, um, but we'll see this uh, arrive today. And the Lord always says, I will be your God um, and you will be my people. I will bless you and make you a blessing. And, it, and it, I, that is what I want you to hear through this series. I want you to hear the Lord saying to you, uh, if you're one of the people who trust Christ, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I want you to know the fullness of what that means. What does it mean for God to say, I will be your God? What is he committing to us? What is he promising? What is he saying? And when I say I will be one of your people, what does that mean for you and your life in everyday terms? What does that mean uh, for us at Stains Con? And also I want you to know how to live uh, under God's blessing. That's the place we want to be. We want to know God's um, work, God's blessing in our lives. So the story so far. Sorry, I did think that I've, I've forgotten to animate some of these slides, but there we go. As the story starts, um, so God's people are just Adam and Eve. They're the parents of all humanity. So at the beginning, God's people are Adam and Eve, but in a sense, God's people are all of humanity because that's all there are at that moment in time. God's place for them is the Garden of Eden, but also God's place for them is the whole world. They've been commissioned to go out and take charge of the whole world. And they've been given some responsibilities. They've been given some general responsibilities to honour work, uh, honour the Sabbath and honour marriage. But they have a specific word from God. Um, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we've seen that God's covenants are always his initiative. And you can't see that more clearly than, than here it is in, in creation. 
Adam and Eve, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be a people. <laughs> they wouldn't be people at all if they hadn't been created. Um, there wouldn't be a place for them um, if they hadn't been, uh, if God hadn't made it. Now, there wouldn't be a relationship unless God uh, was there with them. And today we're going to see what do Adam and Eve do uh, with this first covenant, this covenant of creation um, God has made with them. But more importantly, um, we're going to see how God responds to what they do or don't do with this covenant um, that he has made. And so we're going to meet some interesting characters. I'm not going to go through this in detail. We've been through Genesis 3 before. I just want to look at it from the point of view of the covenant. We meet a, we meet a crafty snake. It says that the snake was crafty above all animals. Was he crafty before Satan entered into him? Because this clearly is the voice of Satan uh, speaking through the snake. We, I can't give you a definitive answer to that. But it's interesting that the snake is cursed, the animal, um, that he will crawl on his belly and Satan is cursed too. They, they, receive, um, they both receive curses for what happens here. And God, uh, sorry, Satan um, tempts Eve with, with a lie. And you know this story, and I don't want to focus on it um, in great detail or take a great deal of time about it. But Genesis 3 says, when the woman saw that the, free, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also for, desir for desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And I think it's the case that sin always comes in these same kinds of ways. Sin appeals to the stomach. She thought it was good for food. It always appeals to our appetites. It might be your appetite for something addictive, alcohol or drugs. Um, it might be your, your sex drive. It might be simply your stomach. Sin always appeals um, to one of those appetites. Um, it always appeals to the eye. She saw that it looked good. It, sin always looks great. It always looks great, whatever that might be. Um, whether it's sexual, whether it's possessions, whether it's something advertised to you, whether it's the desire to make something bigger than it ought to be, it always looks great. And it always appeals, I think, um, to the desire to be clever and superior and independent of authority desirable for gaining wisdom she wanted to be she wanted to be clever maybe she wanted to be superior or maybe that desire of knowledge is a desire to be independent of god and as one writer says there the only thing standing against these these quite powerful desires is just a handful of words that god has said don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and as Nick Howard says in that little book that I recommended, God's word can seem very flimsy and insignificant at times. She's being tempted by Satan. Uh, he appeals, it appeals, uh, it appeals to her in so many uh, powerful ways. And the only thing that stands against it is this word that God has given them. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I wonder whether it, 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 it it came to her like sometimes it comes to you. Sometimes it seems so arbitrary and, and so small and so insignificant. But we should learn from this story today that uh, far from it, the consequences of uh, going against this little word are, are, are really significant. Eve eats the fruit. She hands some to Adam, who is um, standing with her, and the covenant conditions 
and the covenant curses kick in. See, God's covenants are always a, a gracious call to be God's people. Adam and Eve have received it without doing anything, without cost, without intervention. God's covenants always um, uh, give access to a place of blessing. Uh, for them, a garden of delights and a, and a world to be uh, to be enjoyed uh, and and used and, and taken charge of. God's covenants, um, they always come with conditions, responsibilities, if you're going to enjoy the blessings. And God is patient and long-suffering, and we'll see that later on in some of the other covenant stories. But there comes a point where covenant abuse leads to covenant breakdown. And Adam and Eve have broken the covenant, and the covenant curses kick in. The Lord had said, don't eat from this tree. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. And they will die. Doesn't happen quite as they expected, because I guess you might have expected that God would execute his death penalty straight away, and he doesn't. He still gives them a, a lifetime. But it is a lifetime rather than eternity in the garden with him. And they will be expelled from his place. I think that's implicit, too. That those who disobey the covenant, they're expelled from the place that God has given them. That's what Adam and Eve do. I guess the question is, what does God do? The covenant curses kick in. We, we've seen that death, uh, eviction from the garden. But as they do, even as God curses them, I, God presents another covenant so that his relationship with mankind can continue um, outside of Eden. So even as he curses them, um, God is moving on um, to another covenant uh, in a slightly different form. It promises that all is not lost, um, even as it at the same time uh, confirms the painful nature of life now in a fallen world. And God curses each of the participants in, in sin in, in their turn, Satan, Eve um, and, and Adam. But within this curse to the snake, there is a kind of three-part declaration that, that kindles hope for humanity. There is evidence of a new covenant uh, among the cursing. And there are kind of three battles here in, in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 3 between Eve, Eve, and, uh, Eve and Satan. Uh, it's there in, in, in verse 14. God says, Sorry, let me work this out. Three battles, yeah. So he says, I will put enmity between, between you and the woman. There is this ongoing battle between um, Eve, Eve and Satan, and, and specifically between her offspring, between your offspring and hers. It's clear he's not talking about um, the, the snake anymore. An offspring in, in the original Hebrew is, is like in English. It can be um, a singular word uh, or it can be plural. And I think we're to read this, that there is going to be ongoing enmity between uh, the, the woman's uh, seed, her offspring, um, her descendants, and, and Satan's. And I think it's easy, interesting as you read through, um, particularly the New Testament, um, Jesus spoke to a, a group of Pharisees. It's there in John 8. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. There are a group of people who, because they are uh, rejecting Christ, they're seen um, as sons of Satan. Jesus spells that out very clearly. And John later on in 1 John um, 3 says to the church, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Anyone who doesn't do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who doesn't love their brother and sister. So John says that uh, in this world, there are uh, children of God uh, by faith and, and there are children of Satan. And it starts right back here um, in Genesis 3. There will be enmity between Eve's offspring and Satan's offspring. And we live um, in this place of warfare, this place of enmity between the people who follow Eve. And as we'll see in a moment, Eve is someone who, who um, enters into God's new covenant. And the people who sometimes unwittingly, quite often blindly, um, follow Satan. And this is the warfare that, that Jesus um, warns of. He says, everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus warns us um, in, in this world there will be, uh, there will be warfare. You'll be hated as a Christian because you're not a child of Satan. And it starts back here in Genesis 3. And then there's a third battle. So there's enmity between Satan and the woman. There's enmity between her offspring uh, and his. And then there's a third battle that he, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is a certain he. There is a final battle here um, spelled out in Genesis 3. It's a one-on-one -on -one battle between a he, a certain one of, of Eve's offspring, who will crush Satan's head who will land the decisive blow at the cost of his heel um, being struck. This is the earliest gospel message, as it were, in the Bible. As soon as Adam and Eve um, break this covenant that God has put for them, there is the first telling of the gospel, the good news, that a serpent crusher who we know as Jesus Christ will come and will crush the head of serpent at the cost um, of his own life, of his heel being struck. It's great to see, isn't it amazing to see um, that here is Jesus in Genesis 3.15. But in addition to those three battles, um, there they are in, in, in the curse on the snake. Um, all of humanity... Um, are cursed now through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are both cursed in the in the areas of responsibility. So Eve, um, Eve must give birth for for this champion to come, for this serpent crusher to come, and she must give birth if Adam and Eve are going to their, uh, their mandate to go out into the world and subdue it and take charge of it. But childbirth for her will now become excruciatingly painful. And women, I know that you know that as a reality if you've had children. And in addition, um, God says um, her desire will be for her husband. And it's written in such a way that I think what that means is her desire will be she wants to rule over her husband. She will want to be boss, um, but he will rule over you. So she will constantly want to take the lead, which belongs to the man, and he will instinctively want to enforce her submission. As part of, of the curse which God has put on the whole world from this point on, um, Marriage will be hard work. I think we should kind of write that into kind of marriage preparation classes. It is, I think, I did believe, and um, Keith spoke on this from Ephesians, didn't he? There's the husband's resp uh, responsibility um, to lead, but his leadership must be um, sacrificially loving. It mustn't be ruling over her by force. It must be a sacrificially loving leadership like Jesus does with his church. And if the woman's to submit, then that must always be voluntary. It must never be enforced or coerced. It must be 
like Jesus um, to his father. So both husband and wife pattern themselves on Jesus in different ways. I have to say, I don't see this marriage uh, in this format practiced uh, very often, if at all, um, in the world around us, that the husband uh, loves like Christ. I think husbands, isn't it that temptation? Sooner or later, either you want to just give up your responsibility um, to take the lead, or you want to rule over your wife and you want to tell her what to do. I think it's true. I think it's temptation that comes to all of us and women, isn't there a temptation? You want to be the boss, you want to rule over your husband. I don't see this uh, um, this pattern for marriage uh, that we find in the Bible um, practiced very often. Uh, husbands, it's a, it's a costly, um, sacrificial, loving leadership like Christ. Uh, that doesn't force or coerce uh, and a woman's submission is voluntary uh, doesn't need to be asked for um, like Jesus to his father it's a challenge for the man um, for Adam work is cursed it will be toil the plants will find fight back it's going to be hard but more than that the the, the you know the very ground um, that, he, that he works on is cursed curse is the ground and because of you, the whole earth actually is cursed at this point. All the natural disasters that we get in the world um, stem from this moment of curse. Drought, pests, flood, earthquakes, all kinds of diseases. Um, they date back to this moment in, in Genesis 3. And this is, the, this is um, what is explained in Romans 8. Um, Paul says, creation was subjected to frustration, not by its choice but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God at this moment, back in Genesis 3. But in hope, um, that's as in a firm hope, not in a, a kind of vague hope, um, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. So creation will be liberated from this curse um, when, at the same point, uh, when it's brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God, at the same point where God uh, brings about his new creation and we receive our new bodies, then creation will be freed from this curse upon it. This is the Bible's answer to the problem of pain and suffering. There's masses more, isn't there, we could say about that. Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? It's God's curse. It's God's just curse on uh, Adam and Eve's uh, rebellion. And as Nick Howard again in that little book says, if God had cushioned us from the consequences of our sin, how would we know our need for him? If God had cushioned us from the consequences of our sin, how would we know our need from him? Why, why is there pain? It's a reminder that we need to get back to God. We need to get right with him. And this covenant, this new covenant um, that God has said uh, is accepted. It lasts for 1500 years, judging by the chronology of Genesis. And there are signs, I think, almost straight away as you read on into, into Genesis chapter four, um, that this covenant is accepted by some and rejected by others. So when Eve has, um, when Eve has another child, um, if you read it in the NIV, she says, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Um, that's when she gives birth to, to Cain. And, and actually what she, she says literally in the Hebrew, it's, a, it's just a smattering of words. She says, I have acquired a man, the Lord. And it sounds like a cry of hope. I've given birth to a man who is God come down. I'm the serpent crusher. And I think there's a sign there that, that Eve has realised um, that there needs to be a serpent crusher. It's going to be one of her descendants. It's 
it's going to need to be God himself come down if the servant is going to be crushed. It certainly sounds like it. I think there's, a, there's an implication there. She's believed the covenant. And maybe she hopes that this next child is him. If she did, then she's disappointed because obviously that's Cain. And you know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain presents an offering of crops to the Lord. And Abel presents an animal sacrifice. And we might think that simply reflects their occupations. Cain works the soil. He's an arable farmer. Abel keeps um, flocks. But Cain's offering is not acceptable. And right from the start, we see it's not acceptable because it's bloodless. Because there's no sacrifice in, involved. And I think at this point, because we see that God speaks clearly to, to Cain um, in, in the verses that follow, I think Cain must have known uh, at this point in time. Um, God must have told him. Otherwise, there, there would be no blame attaching. Um, that what Leviticus uh, will later say, that the life of the creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Outside the garden, once that original covenant is broken, we can only stay in relationship with God if a substitute takes the penalty for sin. If blood is spilt somewhere along the line. Cain and Abel should have known that. Abel does and, uh, and Cain doesn't. And God tells him he's got it wrong. And you know the rest. So let's just think about so a few lessons for us. Okay, to, uh, to work this out. Let me see you in the face. It's always a bit more encouraging for me rather than see the PowerPoint. Some lessons for us. All, all teaching in the end has to come back to Jesus. The Bible's teaching is about Jesus from beginning to end. Um, from here, Genesis 3.15 to the end. If, if teaching um, goes away from Jesus, um, then something's gone wrong. And I just ask you to apply that if you're you know, a Sunday club teacher um, or, or if you're reading the Bible or you're wondering what the Bible's about, it's all about Christ. And he makes that clear, doesn't he, Luke 24, um, that all the scriptures speak about him. That's the first thing. Second thing is that you, you must expect conflict with non-Christians. If you're a Christian, you, you've entered into to warfare, you've entered into a place of, of tension. Um, Paul says to Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you really want to live a godly life, you'll find it hard and people will not like you for it. Paul goes on to say, well, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's interesting, isn't it? Evildoers and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's just how the world is. It started in Genesis 3. Um, it will end when Christ returns. But that's the reason we can rejoice when we face um, persecution. So uh, Jesus said, blessed are people, <clears throat> blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, say false things against you. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, that persecution is a sign <clears throat> that the gospel is true and that you're on the winning side. So you can rejoice when you're persecuted because actually you're being like Christ and you're being like the prophets. And it's a sign that you're on the winning side. But your response should be to pray for them. And Jesus went on to say, um, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you are feeling persecuted, if we are feeling a Christian minority, and I'm sure we do, 
and pray for those people who make you feel that way, whether that's a personal connection, whether that's on the news or whatever it might be. The other lesson I think is that we should fight the temptation to, to, to disobey God. Fight the temptation to disobey God. Temptation always comes uh, the same way. Don't you think? Voice of Satan comes through, not usually in, in, in your head. I don't think he has access to your head and your mind and your thoughts. It just comes through the things he throws up around you. Um, can't go on the internet and even view any web, almost any website without seeing some kind of inappropriate image. You can't watch um, TV without uh, an inappropriate view of, of sex or of creation uh, being thrown at you. Temptation always comes the same way. It looks great. It, it appeals to the appetite, makes you feel grown up. Um, makes you feel like you you are something and you are an independent power. And as I'll tell you in a minute, we live in an unbreakable covenant because for us, blood has been shed and we don't have to make any more sacrifices because Christ has been made. Christ has made the sacrifice, but there are still covenant conditions if you want to live in the blessing that God offers you. So there's a great promise in, in uh, James 5. He says, confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous per person is powerful and effective. Don't you want to be a, a powerful and effective prayer? Well, that comes when you walk with the Lord, when you walk like Jesus walked. And, and there's a promise in um, 1 John 3. Uh, John says, do you remember this from 1 John? If our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. That there's a place, when you're walking with sin, it just destroys your um, Christian confidence. It, it destroys your confidence in answered prayer. It destroys your assurance before God if you walk in persistent sin. But if you walk in the commands as Jesus does, then you have that lovely confidence before God that you can ask him anything. You have that lovely assurance that you're right with him um, and that you're saved. Um, Oh, and I can't remember the quote now that we came back. Someone, someone said that like assurance is like the four courts of heaven or something. Um, was one of the quotes we looked at at the time. Assurance is that place of blessing, um, a, a great place to be. So fight temptation. And the way to fight it is always the same way um, Adam and Eve needed to take hold of God's word and believe it. Believe that it was really true. Um, and the Bible is still the sword of the spirit. The word of God, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The Bible is the tool that the spirit uses to, to work in you, um, to convict you and empower you about the things you do and about the things you don't do. It is still the same. The word of God, Hebrew says, is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Bible is the sword of, of the spirit. Or put it the other way around, he was put it the other way around. The spirit makes the word alive and active so that it so that it penetrates and it gets into your life and it tells you about your life. It tells you about the really subtle stuff that's going on in your life that you've hidden away from the Lord or the subtle places 
um, where you're trying to be independent of the Lord. And I was just thinking about this picture of sword this morning. Um, and in Revelation 19, when judgment comes, um, it says the rest were killed by the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. When judgment comes, when Christ comes to judge, it, it's, he comes, the picture language in Revelation, there's a massive sword comes out of his mouth. Um, and those people who die are, are, are killed by the sword. You have two choices um, today, and I just present them to you. You'll either let, um, you'll either in Christ, let the Bible be the spirit scalpel to come in your life and cut away the things that don't need to be there and to heal you. Or the Bible will be the sword of your destruction when Jesus returns. And you only actually have those two choices. Gonna share my final screen. God calls his people always to live in his place under his blessing. God's people in his place under his blessing. But until Jesus returns, there's going to be a battle against uh, Satan and you're going to be uh, at odds with Satan's children. And there will be a battle against sin. But God's place for you now is in Christ. That is God's place for you now. It's not a, a geographical location. The place for you now is to be in Christ. In Adam all die, Corinthians says, but in Christ all be made alive. Jesus is... Uh, the blood of the sacrifice which needs to be shed uh, for human beings to live uh, in fellowship with God and under his blessing. Hebrews says, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. We're so blessed. We live under this new covenant, which we'll tell you more about in, in later weeks, where the blood has been shed and it's shed once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous to bring you to God. But the place of blessing is to walk like Jesus did. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We're God's people. We're in God's place in Christ. If you're not in Christ this morning, do something about it. Talk to somebody. Pray to the Lord. Because otherwise you're in a very dangerous place. We're God's people in Christ under his blessing, walking as Jesus did. Keep fighting against sin. Don't get discouraged by those. Um, who would odds with you and walk with Christ? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that we are that we understand a bit more today. We understand why there is pain and suffering. We understand why life and marriage and even bringing up kids is hard. We understand now why there is enmity between us and, and, and people around us. They just don't understand. They don't want to understand. But we understand, too, that we're in a, a new covenant, a new covenant under Christ, where the blood is shed once for all. We don't have to bring you sacrifices day by day. We also know it's an unbreakable covenant because ultimately it depends on the obedience of Christ, not on our obedience. We're so grateful to you for that. We ask you to help us live in the light of this covenant, to walk like Christ today and in the weeks to come. Help us use your word. It is the tool, the weapon that we have. Help us to use it. Use it wisely in Jesus' name. Amen.